John chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Uh, when the scripture says a certain person, a certain man, uh, the point is that you're talking about someone specific. Uh, there are occasions where the scripture gives us illustrations. Jesus teaches parables and he tells us this is an illustration. This is a parable. This is a story. You know, there was a certain man who had a kingdom and, you know, he goes on in illustration. Here, when he makes the statement that he's a certain man, this is a real account. This is an actual occurrence. Uh, I say that because in Luke chapter 16, he does the same thing of a different Lazarus. It talks about the rich man and Lazarus and how they both died and went to eternity. And we derive from that a great deal that we know and understand about heaven and hell. And then people read it and go, well, that's just the story. No, it's not. Jesus is telling us that it is of particular people, that this is a real account. We want to be careful. Uh, I do it, too. We talk about Bible stories, you know, the Bible story of Adam and Eve, the Bible story of Noah, the Bible story of David, you know, the Bible story of David and Goliath. They're not stories. They're accounts. It's not fable. It's not made up. They're not pretend. They're not mythical. These really happened. And it isn't just that we hold to it and we believe it. The history of the world confirms it for us. We're able to dig up the remains of these circumstances and find the names of these people written down and engraved and kept for history. These circumstances transpired. So here, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, uh, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, if you're familiar with the occasion of Mary anointing Jesus' feet, you may be thinking, like, we haven't even gotten to that occasion yet. Here, uh, John is writing to believers who are already familiar with how these things have transpired. So he tells us before the occasion is recorded in the account, which Mary we're talking about, because the believers in the day understood which Mary we were talking about. Therefore... The sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Uh, kind of a poetic way of saying that Lazarus is sick and that Jesus uh, should come. There's a deep relationship between this family, between these people and Jesus. We see a few occasions of interaction where he's in their home. Uh, most of us are familiar with the story, the account, see, even I do it, uh, of Mary and Martha and their, uh, Martha's very busy and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. So this is a friendship that goes beyond the normal ministry relationship Jesus has with the public. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness 
is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's an overarching uh, message uh, in the Christian life. Because even when death comes to us, as Paul records, we don't sorrow in the way that the world does. Uh, We have hope in Jesus Christ. And regardless of whether death does touch our lives, we can trust in him for the day where he has victory over death. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days. I don't know about you, but if I am not familiar with this account, that sentence doesn't seem to make sense. He loved them, so he didn't go. I don't know about you, but I've had many experiences like that where I'm in need and I have a relationship with the Lord where I call out to him and he does not show up. And in my heart, it feels like failure. It has the appearance like something has gone wrong, either on my part or on the Lord's part. Some of you may have prayed for people to be healed by the Lord who were not, who passed on, and your heart, even thinking about it right now, is broken. The Lord is going to prove his faithfulness in this situation and in your situation as he ministers to us. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there? The popularity of Jesus' ministry has peaked. And we are now approaching the death of Jesus. And he is repeatedly forewarning the apostles that his betrayal and his persecution and his crucifixion is ahead of them. Uh, So now that they are aware that there is a mounting hatred towards Jesus, the great popularity has reached its zenith and it has passed. They're now cautioned. They're now worried about going uh, to this, uh, into Judea and experiencing this animosity. Jesus answered, verse 9, Are there not 12 hours in the day? Um, that, that is a common statement, especially at this time. You know, it, it's sort of lost, uh, you know, on our culture today. You, you might think about being at work and you've still got you know a couple of hours left on the clock and somebody doesn't want to start the next project because they can see the day has only got a couple hours left and you might say aren't we still on the clock it's that sort of attitude jesus is saying isn't it isn't it still time to work isn't it still time uh to labor If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. This is a much bigger statement. A lot of these things in this short little section are lost on us. Jesus is saying to them, 
I can't die before the appointed time. We, we haven't reached the darkness of my persecution where I'm going to be betrayed and turned over and scourged and crucified. We're, we're still in God's will. I think that's very significant for every one of us to recognize because we often function out of fear, concern. Oh, well, if I do that, you know, this circumstance might lead to further persecution. I'm very concerned for the church at large and the way that it has abandoned fellowshipping together with the rest of the body of Christ. They're concerned about you know, coronavirus, concerned about the government, concerned about all kinds of scenarios. The Lord is our protector. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. When is your final hour? None of us knows. Wherever that is, uh, you're going to meet your maker. Uh, I've spoken to you about a book. It's out of print uh, called On the Death of Saints and Sinners and the particularly strange ways a number of people have died throughout history. And the one that I often bring up is the Roman senator who witnesses saw an eagle swoop down into a lake and pick up a small tortoise and carry it up into the sky, and this is actually a common practices of, of birds of prey, and they drop the you know, oyster or the shell or the tortoise, and it falls to the ground, and it shatters the shell, and then they can eat their prey. And this bird carries the tortoise up into the air and drops the tortoise, and it nails the senator in the head, and he drops dead right there in the moment. Wouldn't that be a horrific way to go? Just... You're on your way to wherever and struck in the head. Uh, how does the headline read at that point? You know what I'm saying? It's just a weird thing. When it's your time, it's your time. And this is what Jesus is saying. Am I going to live a life of fear? There is an appointed day. There is an appointed moment where I'm going to meet my maker. <clears throat> Remember that as you're thinking about those loved ones who maybe you've lost. You know, we often will say things like, they died too young. They died younger than we would prefer. We would have loved to spend more time with them. But in the end, they had an appointment with the Lord. And they made that appointment. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Verse 10, but if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. They're just thinking the old methods of, you know, caring for someone who's not feeling well. Let them rest, you know, pain reliever, give them. You know, lots of fluids is what they're thinking, just like mom used to do or something is, is what they're trying to apply. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. 
Lazarus is not with us anymore. And I am glad for your sake that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Again, Jesus is demonstrating how critical it is to believe in the resurrection. <coughs> we look at death as so overwhelming, so permanent, so unavoidable that if anyone talks about power over death, resurrection from death, there's automatically at least a portion of our heart that wants to assign impossibility to that and say that can't be the case. Even if we trust the Lord, even if we have faith, there's a thing within ourselves that has an understanding of death that has a hard time, really struggles to believe and understand Jesus Christ's power over death. This statement is Jesus saying it's necessary because he knows what's on the other end. Lazarus' resurrection. And this is to help them with their faith, to help them believe in these circumstances. Notice verse 16. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, and in case that stands out to you and you try to go dig up who is the twin and who is the other Thomas and what are they, eh, you'll never find. So far, we don't know. So don't concern yourself too much with that. It was, uh, you know, a nickname. It was a thing that was assigned to him. Peter's real name was what? Simon. And Jesus called him Peter. Uh, these were names that were assigned. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his disciples, let us go that we may die with him. This is loyal despair is what's being said. He, he has in his mind an assurance that Jesus Christ is going to die if he goes to Judea in this moment. And he's so attached, so affixed to Jesus that he's literally saying we might as well all go and die with him. The, the, the idea that, you know, talk about it as negatively as you want to, you know, look at uh, Thomas, as far as saying, you know, that that is a sure thing that Jesus is going to get killed in this process. He's assigning himself to that. Uh, it's interesting. We don't refer to Thomas as faithful Thomas, do we? Right? We often refer to him as doubting Thomas because of what we see later. We're often remembered by our failures and the things we fall short on, right? Thomas is making a claim that's maybe even similar to what Peter says, right? Everyone else might forsake you, but I'll die at your side. It's essentially what Thomas is saying right here. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb uh, four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. We see from other biblical passages that uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were popular in their community. People knew them. 
They had people into their home. They were hospitable. And it is Jewish culture that if someone in your neighborhood passes away, uh, that you would pay respects, that you would go and you would comfort and bring them a meal and care for them and try to bring whatever condolence and comfort to them you could. So now the community is gathered. Verse 20, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We see a slight difference in personality, which is similar to what we see in Mary and Martha throughout their experience with Jesus. <clears throat> Martha is a woman of action, right? She is working in the kitchen while Mary's just taken in Bible study with Jesus, right? When Martha hears Jesus is on the way, she goes out to, I'll say, confront him. She goes out to meet him face to face. She doesn't wait for him to come in the house. She goes out to say, what is the deal? You were supposed to be here. You were supposed to be in my circumstances when it came to this great tragedy. When you are a person who can rest in your heart and wait upon the Lord for whatever answers he may deliver to you in your relationship, to don't be upset or judgmental of people who are sharp and harsh and difficult in their circumstances. Martha has a relationship with the Lord as Mary has a relationship with the Lord. They just have different personalities. Martha charges right out the front door, seemingly, to go get the answers that's burning in her heart. She wants to know what's going on. Why weren't you here? Notice that because Mary's going to ask the same question once Jesus arrives. It's just a difference of personality. So my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. There's a strong hint of faith there in these circumstances. We need to remember that in light of some things we're going to look at. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's looking past the tribulation, past the 1,000 year millennial reign, to the final resurrection when everyone who has ever lived will be resurrected and stand before the great white throne of God and receive their judgment. She's looking at the end of all things. I know that the, he will be resurrected in the last day. Jesus said to her, <coughs> I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, this is what I want to concentrate on in the next few weeks. There's a great deal of resurrection throughout human history. All of that resurrection is through Jesus Christ. Even other religions that want to claim, and I, I have a difficult time believing some of the accounts that I've heard of people being raised from the dead, but in the end, God is the author of life. And he is the only one who has victory. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, is the only one who has victory over death. So here, <clears throat> when he makes this statement about, I am the resurrection and the life, that covers all resurrection. 
He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, that's pointed at Mary, but really it's pointed at every one of us also. Do you believe in the resurrection? Is that your focus? Now, here's the thing, saints, right? Because this isn't just the resurrection of our physical frame. We're going to talk in two weeks, hopefully, about resurrection and baptism, as I said. We need to live in a newness of life now. This power of resurrection, which will bring us out of the grave, also brings us out of death and sin that we are experiencing now. We have a newness of life in Christ that is the power of the resurrection that functions in our life today. So when you're asked the question, do you believe in the resurrection, that's now. In your life today, is it functional? Or are we still in our own personal spiritual grave? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. <coughs> she makes this very positive confession, <coughs> but at the same time, she's going to demonstrate that she struggles with that confession. Uh, the uh, father who had the demon-possessed child who had asked for help and was unable to receive anything from Jesus' followers, then in encountering Jesus begging him for his child to be delivered from demonic possession, Jesus asked him, do you believe in me and my capability to handle this situation is what he was asking. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So if we are feeling convicted about the fact that, yes, I believe, and yet I struggle to believe, well, then you're in good company. I want to make that point because if you tune into any of the televangelists, you sometimes can be left thinking that your ability to believe is the actual power that causes things to happen. And if you misinterpret even some of what's recorded in this account, you may be left thinking that you are the source of the power. That if I just believe more, I can make these things happen. It isn't your power. It's what you're placing your trust in, right? Well, you know the illustration I'm going to use in this state of people every year going through the ice as they're out ice fishing, right? We always lose vehicles, snow sleds and trucks and Stuff goes through the ice, and tragically, sometimes we lose people and lives. They put their trust completely in the wrong thing. There are many people throughout the world who put their trust, right, wholeheartedly into things that cannot save them. 
The faith Jesus is talking about isn't the power of the person. It's the power of the thing you place your trust in. What are you hoping? The televangelists, uh, you know, I, I will mention by name, there are good teachers on TBN, but TBN by and large is a load of junk. And the teachers that are there are terrible by and large. As I say, there are good teachers there, but you've got to be careful about what you're watching because prominently they are from the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. And they teach that faith is a power that you can wield. You can just wish for better things and they will automatically come to you. And they point to the scripture and say that the scripture teaches this. I want If you don't make any other note, I want you to make note of this this morning. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, Peter is in prison. And the Lord sends an angel to Peter. And the angel wakes Peter up in the middle of the night, takes his chains off from him, opens the prison doors, and walks Peter out past all of the guards and everyone who's holding him in prison. They're all asleep, and the angel frees Peter. Peter, according to Acts chapter 12, believes that it's a dream. And it's not until he's out in the street and the angel disappears, and he then has to deal with the reality of, I am literally not in prison anymore. I'm literally now standing on the street corner, wide awake, and I need to take care of myself. So he goes to a home of Christians who are presently, in that moment, gathered together in a prayer meeting that the Lord would deliver Peter from prison. They're praying, Lord, deliver Peter from prison, right in that moment. The reason they're praying so earnestly is because shortly before that occasion, they had imprisoned James and then killed him. It had pleased the Jews, so they captured Peter, and they were about to do the same thing to Peter. And all of them prayed, Lord, deliver Peter from prison. The Lord delivers Peter from the prison. Now he's standing at the gate of this house, banging on the gate, and a young woman named Rhoda comes to the gate, sees Peter. She is so excited that she doesn't even unlock the gate. She runs back inside to the prayer meeting and says to everyone inside, Peter's been freed from prison and he's standing outside of the gate. You would think that because of their faith, right? <clears throat> They're praying that Peter will be released from prison. <clears throat> you would think that they would react with joy. Instead, they mock her, tell her that she's crazy, and that if anybody is actually at the gate, then it's probably Peter's ghost because most assuredly he's been put to death by now. How much faith is involved in their prayer? If, if they're praying, Lord, free Peter, and they get news, Peter has been freed, and their reaction is, that can't be true. He must be dead. So how much, right, how much is their faith the source of the power that freed Peter from prison? What they, what they believe in, 
the one that they're praying to has answered their prayers and has accomplished the work. I say to you again, brothers and sisters, there will be times where you pray and you pray like the father I just mentioned in Mark chapter 9, right? Lord, I believe. Now just help my unbelief. He's going to answer our prayers based upon his capability, right? In the situation, he will answer the prayers according to his will, not according to our whim. So, back to John chapter 11, picking up at verse 28. When she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus, who had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him, then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. It's amazing how... People have to have an answer to every single situation. Make great assumptions. Verse 32, then Mary came where Jesus was, saw him. She fell down at his feet, saying to him, here it is again. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that Martha said, just different personality, right? Our hearts are very fragile. And this woman is demonstrating what's in every one of our thoughts when it comes to difficult moments such as this. Somehow, God has failed. People don't like to admit that because it is a statement of faithlessness. But that's the truth of the matter. When our hearts are overwhelmed with this level of grief, it is only natural that we would question God. It is only natural. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's natural, and we shouldn't feel any level of condemnation in the process. Notice Jesus does not react with any anger or any animosity. Not at all. He meets them in the circumstance, and he understands completely. In fact, he matches their grief. He meets them right where they are. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Right? He, he, he tells us that we should rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. Right? It's always aggravating, isn't it, when you are in the depth of your sorrow and you're expressing that and along comes a well-meaning Christian who wants to cheer you up and they say something that sounds like it's been ripped off the pages of a Hallmark card. You just want to slap them around a little bit. You are in the depth of sorrow. If they'll meet you there, then maybe they can even help raise you up out of that mire and depression that you're in. But Jesus demonstrates to us the fact that he's as brokenhearted as they are. He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Romans chapter 8 verse 26 says, Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses, 
For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And people often think about, oh, if I only had the gift of tongues, or if I only had this or that. You know, sometimes when you hear of other people's pain and you just respond with, oh, that's as deep a spiritual prayer as anything you could blather on about at length. Demonstrating that your heart is broken with them. That's exactly where Jesus meets them. He said, where have you laid him? Verse 34, they said to him, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible. The next two words, Jesus wept. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the end of the chapter, but it's a further demonstration of how deeply wounded Jesus is in this moment of loss. He loves Lazarus. He is overwhelmed with the loss. He is where these people are at in their sorrow. Then Jesus said, see, excuse, then excuse me, I said Jesus. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. An open demonstration of Jesus' sorrow. Remember that when you feel like the Lord is not meeting you where you were at. When you are in the depth of your pain and you feel as though God is a million miles away, he is in the same degree of pain as you are. He never intended for, especially his children, to experience this level of loss and pain and death. That's why it's so grievous to us, because we were not designed to experience it. Our body, our frame, our heart, and our mind cannot handle these things. We weren't designed. We weren't supposed to worship. Joy, fulfillment is what we were designed for. If you consider all of the pain and struggle and depression and loneliness and heartache and frustration that you experience in life, understand that none of that was of God's design. But when you stop in tears, just overwhelmed with life, Christ meets you there. He understands where you're at. And he wants to pick you up out of it. He doesn't want to leave you in that place. He's not saying to you in some condescending fashion, it'll be over someday. Just sort of drag through, you know. He's saying, I'll meet you where you are and I'll pick you up out of this. Some of them said, verse 37, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? See, it's not just Martha. It's not just Mary. It's the public opinion. If God is so good, if God is so big, if God is so strong and mighty, then why couldn't he do something in this situation? It is a perfectly natural response. Again, I'm not saying it's good, right, and proper. I'm just saying it is a natural response to this level of grief. Verse 38, then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Very common burial 
situation in the day. Uh, Israel is generally an extremely rocky ground, so to even create a graveyard where you would bury many people is a lot of toil, a lot of work. You dig in the soil, you're going to hit rocks, and you've got to remove rocks, and a lot of effort, a lot of lifting, a lot of manpower involved. And there are caves everywhere. And the caves wouldn't be just used for one individual. It would be like a family sepulcher. Your entire family would be put in there, one after another. And they do a condensing process, as grisly as it is to describe it that way, where after someone's completely decomposed with great care and dignity, they then put a person's remains into a small box. And then that box is stored inside that cave until you have an assembly of the remains of many people inside there. So this is that concept. He's in a cave where he has been buried. He says, <clears throat> excuse me, he came to the tomb. It was a cave. The stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now listen, this is probably in this passage the most significant verse in regard to the account, right? Jesus wept, shortest verse in the Bible, shows us the depth of what's going on. The belief, the faith we've talked about, but this, as far as the practicality of this conversation in this account, is probably the most significant because the Jews have to this day a false teaching that resurrection is in fact quite possible within the first three days of death. Someone could resurrect not even by supernatural power, just through a natural process, they teach that the spirit, when it departs from the body, is so confused by being separated from the body that it lingers with the body for three days until it's apparent to the soul that it has been separated from the body, in which case it then departs and goes to its eternal resting place. That is a complete myth fabricated entirely from the imagination of Jewish religion. Right? You talk to some Jews, they have no recollection of that, they haven't been taught that at all. You talk to others, and it's sort of one of the ghostly boogeyman stories that they hold to. Three days. Three days you can be resurrected. After four days, there's no possibility of resurrection. Do you understand what's going on here a little bit more? Jesus, hearing that he was sick, waited two more days. Why? He needs four days to pass. So that he can come to this moment and erase, right? Because if he shows up here at the first day or the second day or even the third day and resurrects Lazarus, there is a at least a small group within the body of the community that's going to go, well, of course. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, a couple days. Three days. 
They're going to dismiss it. No. Have you heard of resurrections? In your lifetime. I have. Right? Josh Lawrence's daughter drowned in a pool, was dead for more than 20 minutes. The Lord resurrected her back to life. She was dead for more than 20 minutes. The, the EMTs who had arrived were all done working on her body and were in the process of doing the pronouncement when she came back to life. Okay? And maybe you're sitting there right now going, well, it was only 20 minutes. That toddler was face down in the water for more than 20 minutes. Lungs full of water, gone. Christ resurrected her. Christ resurrected her. We do this thing. Well, the medical team. You know, the surgical process. Life restored to a human being is miraculous whenever it occurs. Whenever it occurs. However it occurs. It is miraculous. We are so incredibly fragile. We, 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 we survive so many things. God has designed within us so many things to avoid death. But in the end, we're incredibly fragile. Life can be snapped away from us in a moment. In a moment. Here, Jesus is overcoming all of this false belief system by waiting four days. Now you understand a little more of why he orchestrates the circumstance. Not only does he need to wait four days, but he also needs to let the full level of decomposition set in. Listen to me in this. <laughs> Have you tried to see yourself delivered from your addiction? And then you turn around, and there it is again, staring you in the face, nagging at you. Have you tried to rescue your marriage? And it turns out that it stinks worse than what you imagined previously. Have you tried to fix your finances? And you find yourself in a hole much deeper than you ever imagined. Why wasn't Christ involved earlier? Why couldn't he have saved my situation earlier? Why didn't he show up earlier? Because he wanted it to go to the full level of death and decomposition so that when he rescues it, he gets the glory. So that nobody stands around and goes, well, of course, of course you got rescued because you started going to that 12-step program. Of course your marriage worked out because, you know, you found a good marriage counselor. Of course your finances, you know, straighten out. You listen to Dave Ramsey, right? These are the things that people do. Christ wants to wait until there's no hope left and step in and say, let me fix that so that he gets the glory. As long as you want to pursue other things, he's content to let you do that. You want to find a different path than him? You go right ahead. You go right ahead. You're going to have to come to the place where you surrender to Christ in the end. This is where it is. He's been in the grave four days. Jesus said to her, verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God. 
Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus' prayer is actually a sermon, right? He is praying to the Father, but he's praying so that the people would hear what it is that he's saying. Remember that. If you get an opportunity to pray, it's okay. It's okay to pray in such a way that you're preaching to the crowd. Right? Oh, it's Thanksgiving dinner. Right? Fellow believer amongst all these unbelieving heathens, why don't you pray? Right? You're, you're the religious person in the room. And they give you the honor and the opportunity. I'm telling you, seize the opportunity to preach as you pray. That they would hear the message, right? You can, you can sell the situation short and just be like, Lord, we thank you for the food. And thank you for bringing us all together and help us to have a good day. Amen. You can miss the cross. You can miss eternity. You can miss hell. You can miss salvation by praying a prayer like that. Take the opportunity to pray. He prays so that everyone there will hear. Because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you have sent me. Now in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus. Come forth. Now, listen. Lots of preachers say that he cried out the name Lazarus and then said, come forth, because had he just yelled, come forth, all of the dead that could have heard his voice would have resurrected there in the moment. And we kind of go, well, isn't that quaint? There's a day where at his voice and at his command, all that have ever lived will be resurrected the same as Lazarus is here in the moment. I have to wonder if his calling into death here in this moment did not rattle all of those souls. Because according to Luke chapter 16, all of them are actually alive, right? We say that, oh, Christianity, eternal life. Guess what? All of us are going to have eternal life. The question is, where are you going to spend that eternity? In the presence of God? You shouldn't think of hell as God's enjoyment in punishing people, right? Think of it rather that God has created a place of paradise where those who trust him and believe in him get to spend eternity with him. If you don't want that, if you haven't accepted that, if you haven't embraced that, then the only other option is to be in a place where he's not there at all. On any level. The scripture tells us that every good thing, every good thing comes down from the Father of lights. If you have experienced any good in life, 
It is because of God. Do you enjoy your children? I do. Do you enjoy your grandkids? I do. Are there certain things in life that you enjoy? Those are all sent to you from God. Are there terrible things? Are there horrible things? No? Surely you have a job. Right? Surely you have things that are mundane, difficult, and aggravating. Those are not from the Lord. Just heap all of those up in one pile. That's where you're going to spend eternity without the Lord. A place of misery and frustration and difficulty. Much better to embrace. The Lord calls into eternity. Lazarus has entered and says, Lazarus, come forth. I guarantee you there's a whole bunch of people, if they in fact heard that, who at that present moment were spending eternity separated from God and for a brief moment that voice echoing into their existence come forth they were so disappointed that it was someone else's name called had they only heard their own name Lazarus come forth he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Deliver him from death, this embalming, this burial that he's experienced. You guys, <clears throat> Christ wants to deliver us from whatever death has bound us. We have to respond to that, right? Lazarus could have laid right there. There is effort involved on Lazarus' part. Right? You hear Christ's voice this morning calling you out of your sin, out of your spiritual death. You've got to respond. Oh, but I'm all bound up. Oh, I'm all tangled up. Oh, I can't move. Neither could Lazarus. Imagine the desperation in the man. Right? His face is bound up. That's always a pleasant experience, right? When your head is all wrapped up inside something. This man, this man is desperate to get out of his situation. You've got to have the same level of reaction and move into action at the call of Jesus Christ's voice. Then many of the Jews had come to Mary and had seen things that Jesus did, believed in him. I would think so. This would be a great evangelical moment of conversion. Some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. There are always tattletales in the crowd, aren't there? <coughs> doesn't matter how much good you do, there will be naysayers present always. Remember that. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs, right? Repent would be the obvious answer. Instead, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. As if that were a bad thing. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's a world around us that does not want the truth of Jesus Christ known. My wife 
is in nursing school and she's working on this huge paper the past few days about the opioid addiction, right? And many of you know, many of you are involved with me in that fight. Others of you know how much I'm involved in that fight. Uh, you know, the personal loss of loved ones around us and the things that are going on. The statistics of the medical community are appalling. The degree to which they're helping people is a joke. It's a joke. They are spending millions of dollars through insurance company to accomplish nothing. Nothing. Imagine if they were pouring those resources into churches. Oh, sure. You want accountability? You know, check on the churches and, and see what they're doing with the funding that you're giving. Imagine if we had boundless resources to help the addicts in our communities. And yet they're all going to sit around and they're all going to pat one another on the back about what great jobs they're doing and what compassionate hearts they have, right? Listen, if you were being charged, let's just say $35,000, uh, for cancer treatment that had less than a 1% success rate. The government would get involved with that level of fraud and they would do something about it, right? And yet, that's exactly what's going on with drug treatment. $35,000, $75,000, $185,000 dollars for 30 days of treatment that has less than a single percent of success rate. CRD that this church is involved in, you guys send me to CRD to work there, Calvary Residential Discipleship, every week. Your being here allows me to be up there. They have a 76 to 80% success rate. Why are we not involved in that? They, they, they can see those statistics. And yet they're not involved. They see Jesus Christ resurrect Lazarus from the dead and they go, man, we got to put an end to that. Everyone's going to follow them if we just let this go unchecked. The world is reacting the same way to our faith as it ever has. It's a Christless, faithless society. Verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and the nation. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. No idea that he's prophesying, huh? It is good, right, and proper, and expedient. Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that would, Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went 
from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and they remained with his disciples. It is not surprising when the world behaves this way. Don't be shocked. Don't stand around and scratch your head and say, why, why don't they? Reckon, why do they behave this way? This is human nature, right? You get right to the trial of Jesus. Here's the Prince of Life, performed all these miracles, resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And what do they choose? A murderous thief, Barabbas. Who do you want me to set free? Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus was their answer. The world is still the same. Look at the remainder of this. Verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was near. Many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That we will not come to the feast? That he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. They're, they're actively carrying out their plot to try and kill Jesus at this point. I want to back up just briefly, give you a couple extra minutes here to give you three biblical references. Jesus wept, right? John eleven thirty five. I personally am convinced <clears throat> it was because he was calling Lazarus from eternity in paradise back to this wretched place. If you have a loved one that's gone on and you wish they could be here, I say to you, let your heart rest in the peaceful knowledge of knowing the joyful state of existence that they are in. We would want them here. I'm convinced a, a substantial portion of Jesus' grief was the fact that he was going to have to bring Lazarus back, not only to suffer this state of existence, but also this plot that they launch against Jesus to kill him, they launch against Lazarus also. They're bringing Lazarus back to this life to be murdered by a hate-filled group of faithless people. Jesus wants to leave him where he's at, I believe. I'll give you three references. Luke chapter 16, verses 30 and 31 says, And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, this is the rich man speaking to Abraham about sending people back to minister to his family. If you send someone back from the dead, they will repent. Abraham, he said to him, the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, the word of God, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You say, well, if a, you know someone was raised from the dead and ministered to me, I'd believe. Thanks for saying that. Because Jesus rose from the dead. And he is ministering to the whole world. If you don't believe him, then you are confirming what he said. Though one rise from the dead, they will not believe him. Jesus rose from the dead with his message in his mouth. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Paul said, I was caught up 
to paradise and heard things so astonishing that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. Paul was stoned to death, dragged outside the city in Lystra and thrown into the trash heap. We are told that he entered heaven and he saw things so beautiful, so astounding. It says it was not lawful for him to speak, meaning there are spiritual laws in place that make it impossible for him to describe to you. That's what, that's what that means. Not lawful for him to speak means it's not possible. So beautiful, so inexpressible, couldn't possibly tell you what it was like. John chapter 12, we just finished John chapter 11. John chapter 12, you can just turn a couple pages to verse 10 and 11, says the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Jesus invited Lazarus back from a beautiful paradise in the presence of God to suffer the murderous plots of the people who pursued Jesus and put him to death. No wonder Jesus wept. No wonder we weep. We weep out of selfishness. I don't say that condemningly. It breaks our hearts tremendously to lose someone. Look for, find, rest in the comfort of the Lord, knowing, we say that, right? They're in a better place. They truly are. The, the next time, tomorrow, as you're dealing with life's aggravations, think about the fact they don't have to deal with this. They don't have to put up with any of this garbage. They've exited life, and they're in the presence of the Lord. Let them rest, and let yourself rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me, and we'll pray? Let your heart, over these next weeks, celebrate the resurrection, the, the most significant of our holy days, and what it is that the Lord offers us. Father, we thank you for your word. And we do pray that you would help us to rest in and to trust you. Lord, we long to be in your presence. We long to see you face to face. Please, please come quickly. Accomplish your work. Finish your plan. Until then, help us to be content and to be about your business. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.